So we're going to be in Ephesians, if you want to join me there, I'd appreciate that very much. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm glad that you're here, and I'm looking forward to studying from this text uh, and some others with you for the next little while. Appreciate, as I said earlier, the guys who've filled in for me the past couple weeks, not only on Sunday morning, but on Wednesday night. I'm glad to be back with you. Appreciate your patience in that regard for my not, not being here uh, the past couple of weeks. You ever wonder, I, I think you do because you're here on a Sunday morning, like what is our greatest struggle? What, what happened in Genesis 3? What happened when Adam and Eve ate that fruit that messed everything up and that is still messing things up for us now? I think probably if I ask you guys the question, I think I'd know how you'd answer it. If I ask it the right way, and it would be something like this. Like, when we become Christians, what happens to us? What, what do we receive at that point? You'd probably say something like, we receive salvation because our sins are washed away. You know, our sins are forgiven. You'd probably say something like that, I'm guessing. And that would be a right answer. We are saved because our sins are washed away. But I think maybe there's a little bit of a, a different emphasis in our culture there's, there's more of an emphasis on that to the exclusion of other things that also happen. What I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to show you how the gospel addresses our three most basic needs, and we tend to ignore a couple of them, I think. Let me give you an example of this. I, there's this book that helped me sort through this this week called The 3D Gospel. The title, My title is similar to it. The 3D Gospel Uh, It's Ministry in Guilt, Shame, and Fear Cultures. And it was fascinating to me because the author of the book, who's done mission work in different parts of the world, was talking about, he's writing about how how the gospel of Christ addresses whatever our greatest need is, and that greatest need often is reflected in the way our culture experiences life. But but the gospel addresses it. And And he tells a story right at the beginning of this book about a young lady who became a Christian when she was in college. And the message she responded to was one that most people in this room have responded to. She accepted Christ. Her transgressions, she recognized, had separated her from God. She realized she deserved punishment, uh, that Jesus died for her sin. She trusted in Him, obeyed the gospel. Her sins were forgiven. She was a Christian. Now, shortly after that, as the story is told, it was a Sunday evening. She was going back to the city from her mom's house, which was out in the country. And she held a taxi cab. And she got in the cab, and there was a male driver, and there were three male passengers. And after just a few minutes, the men began inviting her to their homes, and they were propositioning her. She felt uncomfortable, as you might expect. She was trying to downplay the situation. Halfway through the ride, again, she's coming from a small area, rural area, to the city where her mom lived. Her mom lived in the city. She's going back home. Halfway through the ride, the men stopped for a round of vodka shots along the road, and as they became more intoxicated, the men felt became more physically aggressive to her. At that particular moment, she noticed her uncle in an oncoming car headed in their direction. Let me pause just for a second right there. When I read that this week for the first time, that that story, my mind probably went to the same place yours is right now, and that is, 
Oh, I'm so thankful that her uncle is coming the opposite direction. She's seen him. He'll see her. She'll flag him down, and she'll be rescued. At that moment, she noticed her uncle in an oncoming car headed in her direction. Here's the next line. But instead of jumping into the road and flagging her uncle down, she hid. She didn't want her uncle to see her because her primary concern in that moment was avoiding shame and maintaining family honor. This young lady lived in Central Asia. Now that story at the first part of the book is meant to illustrate a very important thing. And what he's, what he's getting at is that we experience life in different ways depending on where we come from, depending on our culture. In the Western world, we are an individualized, we have an individualized perspective, generally speaking. This is, I know, probably overgeneralizing, but generally speaking, we have kind of an individualistic perspective. We maintain guilt or innocence based on what we've done or haven't done. There's a kind of a legal perspective. We have done something that needs to be adjudicated, so we go before a court, go before a judge, and we are declared guilty or innocent. Hopefully, we'll be declared innocent. It's a very individual kind of thing. In an Asian culture, and in some other cultures, but particularly in Asian culture, it's geared more along the lines of honor and shame. If I do something, or if I allow, and this, this young lady in this story, what she was wanting to avoid was the fear that it would bring shame to her family because she had made a poor choice in allowing herself to get into that situation. You and I as Westerners would think, well, it's not her fault. She needs to do what she can to save herself at that particular moment, right? Flag the uncle down, get out of the situation. But her concern was she would hurt her family if it was discovered that she was even in that situation. See, shame and honor. She needed to honor her family by not bringing shame on them. In some cultures, particularly in Africa and some in South America, it is along a fear and power perspective, and that is this. It's often the case that people are more afraid of things going on in the unseen realm. They, they're afraid of, of, of evil forces, of evil and good, and the, and the conflict between them. And so they need to live their lives in such a way as to try to maintain power over that which they cannot see. And so there are sacrifices, there are rituals and rites that often take place in various cultures around the world to try to maintain power. Now what I want you to see what I think we all need to see is though we live life from a Western perspective, these other two aspects also shape the way we view the world and the way that we experience true freedom. See, it may be that because of our particular culture, we, we think about salvation in legal terms. I am guilty and now I have been made innocent by Christ. And that's a perfectly good way of thinking about it. But it's not the whole picture. We also experience shame, and we need to recognize that God gives us honor. We also live according to fear sometimes, and we need to see that through Christ we have been given confidence and power, not our own, but His, over that which might hurt us. That's where this lesson is going to go for the next few minutes. We're going to start in Ephesians 1. Now here's one that we're very familiar with. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it right now. Because we have in the past, we will in the future. And that is this. He is our sacrifice. Jesus Christ is our sacrifice, so we have no guilt. This is a forensic kind of way of thinking about salvation. It's a biblical way, by the way. Paul does it a lot in Romans. He does it some in Ephesians. And it's the idea that I, as an individual, have sinned against God, and therefore I have ostracized myself from God. 
Legally, I am in a state of guilt. I am away from him. And so what I need is I need someone to plead my case or to use biblical terms, I need someone who will be my substitution, someone who will stand in for me. And of course, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans, he tells us that Jesus not only stands in, but he takes the punishment that I deserved. And so in that legal forensic, that, that, that kind of environment, I am guilty, the innocent one steps in, and his life is taken in place of mine, and he receives the punishment I deserve, and because of that, I can stand upright before God, and I can be innocent. I can, I can have confidence before the throne of God. I have been adjudicated because of his life. I've been declared innocent, right? See that? And it's, a, it's a good way of thinking about it. Paul uses that kind of language. He is our sacrifice. He's our substitute. He is our atonement. And so we go to the throne of God, and we are innocent because of what he's done. That's a very Western way. It goes all the way back to Paul, but as far as church history goes, uh, Augustine in the 4th century was one who really established this trajectory among Western cultures that that would be the primary emphasis. Now, it's a good emphasis. I just want you to see that it's insufficient because you've got other stuff going on, and I've got other stuff going on, that we need to make sure we understand are also being addressed. These things are also being dealt with at the cross. Now, as far as Ephesians goes, Ephesians chapter 1 goes, look at, uh, look at verse 7, because Paul does it here. Ephesians 1, 7, In Him, as in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. So Paul says, because of the cross, we have been given redemption. We have been bought back. And the primary aspect of that redemption is I, you as individuals, have been forgiven. Our sins are no longer going to be held against us in God's divine tribunal. We declare it innocent. That's Ephesians 1. That's not it. <clears throat> look, at, look at this one, this idea as well. We have brought shame. What, what, happened, what happened in Genesis 3? I want to talk to you about some things we've, we've talked about here before, but just to help you to see, I think, what, what the gospel is doing in this realm as well. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They ate the forbidden fruit, and as a result of that, they were ostracized from God. They were removed from the garden. Chair beam were set up. Remember that story. They have declared war against God. They are out of fellowship with God because of what they've done. Now, the biblical story goes on, of course. It's a beautiful story that finds its way to Jesus Christ. But something else that happened there in Genesis 3 is that they brought shame on the name of God, their creator. Do you remember in Genesis 1 when the writer tells us that we are created in the image of God? In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. That beautiful divine image implanted in each human being, that we bear the mark of our Father, of our Creator. And yet in, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, everything got messed up. That image of our Father became distorted. And the biblical way of talking about this, I'll show you more in just a second, but a biblical way of talking about this is that we brought shame on the name of our Father. Because of us, because of our rebellion, there is this honor and shame, uh, tension that got distorted. 
instead of bringing honor to the name of God by wearing His image, by showing the world what God looks like, instead, we stepped in and we brought shame instead of honor. Now, that's a very Middle Eastern, in our world today, it's still a Middle Eastern, I didn't mention it a minute ago, but a, a very Middle Eastern and certainly an Asian way of thinking about relationships. But it's also a very biblical way of thinking about it because the Bible arose out of Middle Eastern cultures, you know. And so you'll see this, you'll see this a lot. In, um, in this kind of environment, your clan or your family is more important than the individual. That sounds weird to Western ears. Do you remember the story? Let me give you an example of this. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, when uh, the people of Israel had gone <clears throat> against the city of Ai, A-I, the city of Ai. And they had been defeated. And the reason they had been defeated is that Achan had taken some of the spoils from Jericho. And they weren't supposed to do that. They had been strictly forbidden from doing that. But Achan took some of the spoils, hid the spoils, hid the riches in his tent. And then the army went against Ai and they fell. They're trying to figure out what's going on. You know, why 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 were we defeated by this little, little village, this little city? Now, now, long story short, it's a long story, but, but here's what happened. They found out it was, it was Achan who did it. So they took Achan and his family, his wife and his kids, and they took them out and killed them. Remember that? To us Westerners, we think that is scandalous. Achan's the one who's guilty. His family, apparently, as far as the text goes, had nothing to do with it. And yet they took the whole family out. But from a Middle Eastern perspective, the, the community, the family, is also bearing in the guilt, in the guilt of the individual. Now, I'm not, I don't bring that before you to talk about the, you know, the right and the wrong and, and, and how that works in the biblical plan, only to show you that somebody reading that 3,000 years ago, some you know, Jewish reader of that, wouldn't, they wouldn't have thought anything about that. Well, of course that's what they're going to do because it's the family unit. You stand or fall as a family. That's a very Middle Eastern way of viewing things. Now, that fits along with that story we started out with, that this young lady didn't, didn't flag her uncle down because she would rather be harmed and possibly killed than to bring her family down, than to bring shame to them. Now, what I want you to see is that this experience is not an Asian thing, and it's not a Middle Eastern thing, it's a human thing, but sometimes, sometimes I think you and I as individuals, very much who live according to that kind of perspective, we, we sometimes suppress the fact that we do often live with this kind of feeling of shame. And I would guess that probably everybody in this room and everybody joining us online experiences shame. And sometimes we allow it to control us. It may be because you've got some sin that you're struggling with that nobody else knows about. Maybe only a handful of folks know about. And you're struggling with it. And you come to church every week with this feeling of shame. It may be because of something that happened to you years ago, but you live in shame. It's a sense of I've let my family down. I've let my community down. I've let my God down. And now I am, I'm just filled with shame. People live that way. You may be living like that. Again, that's not an Asian thing. It's not a Middle Eastern thing. It's a human thing. And it's what happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve did what they did and they brought shame on the name of God because the image of God was not being displayed in them at that moment. Now, 
Look in Ephesians back there in verse 5 because I want you to see that this honor-shame idea is reflected in the gospel. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. He predestined us for what? What was that? For adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. I think the best way of illustrating this is the story of the prodigal son. Remember that story? Story of the prodigal son. Man had two sons. The youngest of them said, Father, I want my inheritance now. And, uh, and, and, and what that meant was the father had to liquidate a certain portion of his, of his uh, holdings, uh, liquidate those assets, and, and, and give the gold to his son. And, and the son, by the way, we've talked about this before, not too, not too many months ago. That was absolutely scandalous for him to do that. In an honor-shame culture, for him to shame his father like that, he deserved to be killed. He deserved to be ostracized. How could you drag your father's name through the mud by asking him to give you inheritance early? And to add insult to injury, he took what he had. He went to the far country, lived a rebellious life, and wasted it. Now, when the story goes on, and that young man finds himself working in a pig pen, if you were a Jewish first century hearer, what you would have thought at that moment was good because that's exactly what he deserves. And then when he started talking about going home, you get even more excited because you're thinking, this family, this guy who's brought shame on his father's name, he's about to get exactly what he deserves because you don't, you don't bring shame to your family unit. You just do not do that. And if you do, you pay the consequences. And so when that young man starts coming home, and you see that father take off running, which is another thing a Jewish man, a Middle Eastern man would never do, a patriarch would never do. He takes off running, and he hugs him, and he kisses him, and he puts shoes on his feet, and he kills the fatted calf, puts that ring on his finger, and all this stuff's going on. You are absolutely floored. How could someone who has shamed the family how could he be honored like that again? And the answer to that for us is what? Jesus Christ is the reason we can be honored again because God has predestined us in him for adoption. We have been invited back into the family. The fatted calf has been killed. A ring is on your finger. You're wearing shoes on your feet again because God has honored you, not because you deserve it, the, the, the son came home with at least partially the right attitude. Look, just let me be a hired servant. Just, just, just let me be somewhere on the property, you know. And God says to him, in essence, uh-uh. You're my son. And God says to you, me, who shamed his name, who've taken the image of God and dragged it through the mud, as it were, and showed the world that, an idea of God that is scandalous and ugly and distorted. God picks us up out of that pig pen and He says, you're my daughter. You're my son. You are honored and highly favored. Not because you deserve it, but because through Jesus Christ we have been adopted back into the family. Restored to the household. You see, we brought shame on the family name. 
But we're not done forever because God, through Jesus Christ, honors us. See, on that Sunday morning, after Jesus having been crucified on Friday, God raised Jesus from the dead, and in that, resur- in that moment of resurrection, Jesus being highly exalted, restored the honor of the family name, and our shame was removed because of Him. You see, so how, how does that address us? We're, we're not, we don't live in an Asian culture. We don't live in a Middle Eastern culture. But, but again, I want you to recognize this. It's not, it's not so much a cultural thing. Maybe a cultural thing helps us to realize it. But it's a human thing. And what I think we need to realize is that we might be living in a state of shame. Not understanding because, that because the tomb was empty, God has said to us, You're my son. You're my daughter. You will be honored. I wonder what that might do for us. I wonder how it might change the way we live our lives if we weren't weren't dragged down with with this weight of shame all the time. If we understood He's freed us up to honor Him in the way we live and not to be constantly moping around with this burden and this weight of shame. He's adopted us. Here's the third one. We have Him as our Lord. So we have no fear. No fear. I mentioned at the beginning of this, culturally speaking, there's this fear-power tension, especially in African, many African cultures and in some South American cultures. Again, I know it's an oversimplification, but it, in some sense, reflects a dominant narrative within certain cultures. And this one is the idea that there are unseen forces. There are evil forces, demonic forces, fighting against that which is good. And in some cultures in the world, you see that playing out on a day-to-day basis by constant rites and rituals and sacrifices. Kind of a... we. We Westerners might call it superstitious, almost in a condescending way. We shouldn't. But that might be our take on it. There's this emphasis on the, the, the tension, the, the power struggle. And so if we are not doing what we need to be doing, not engaging in the right acts, then we live according to fear. But if we're doing what we need to be doing, then we can have power over that which is unseen. Okay, So that's the, that's the kind of narrative I'm, I'm talking about now. But what I want you to see, what I think we need to see is, it's not an African or South American thing, but rather it's a human thing. It's a biblical thing. Look at Ephesians 1, uh, 19. Let's look at verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about some of those unseen forces over which God has given us power because Jesus Christ is Lord. So we don't have to have fear. You see, I think that we are in a time... I think this emphasis would always be relevant, but sometimes it may be more relevant. There are so many things going on in the world right now, and I believe there is a sense of fear in some people, many people, not just Christians, but even in Christians. 
a kind of fear that has different manifestations. It might be a, a fear of getting sick. It may be a, a fear of death. It could be a fear of where the country's going, a trajectory that maybe has been going this way for some time, but it seems as if the trajectory is heading even more to, to a place of secularism where God is relegated to the margins, as it were. It may be fear over division that's creeping in and the partisanship. It, it may be a, an angst and anxiety over even elements of disunity in the church for which Jesus died. And we have this feeling of we're, we're unsettled and we are afraid and we're worried. I believe it's important for us again and again to go back. I don't know how to say this without without saying it in a, in a cliche kind of way. I know you all agree with this, but sometimes our behavior and our emotions don't match up with our intellect. You know, things we know to be true don't necessarily, aren't necessarily reflected in the way we live and think. Jesus Christ is Lord. And no matter what happens in this world, coronavirus, and racial unrest, and partisanship, and election, and Supreme Court nominees, and division and some anger and I mean the list goes on right no matter what happens he's still Lord and our life and our in our emotions and our in our behavior and our words and our attitudes need to reflect our conviction that that is true because we as God's people can sometimes get caught up in the worldly narrative that is fear-based and anger-based and that leads to division and leads to hostility. And when we buy into that, we're buying into something that is anti-God. It's, it's a secular way of framing world events that is not becoming of us who are Christians. And, and, and so I think it's just maybe a reminder for me and for you to keep thinking and especially as we go into November. And, and as, you know, who among us knows what's going to happen, but, but it seems like going into a time where the contention and division may increase even more than it has been the last six months. But let the church be a witness to the world that we're not going to be led by fear and we're not going to be led by anger and we're not going to be led by anxiety, but rather we're going to be motivated and led by the fact that we believe in the empty tomb and we believe he's reigning. And you see, what he says here, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And so our future as God's people doesn't hinge on Supreme Court or presidential elections or discovery of vaccines or whatever. Our future doesn't hinge on that. Our future doesn't hinge on religious liberty for that matter, or law and order. All the hot-button issues that are before us right now, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't care about those things. Only that the future of God's church doesn't rest on those things. Because His name is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And you read Paul here in, in Ephesians 6, and also in places like, read the last part of Romans 8, and you see what Paul seems to be saying is, whatever you think is powerful out there, 
Whatever for you kind of represents the seed of power, whatever that is, political, uh, scientific, cultural, whatever that thing is, he is so far above that thing that that thing has no power over us because he's Lord. I think that's the confidence that we ought to have in Christ. Again, that doesn't suggest we don't have concerns and that we're not that, that we're in somehow therefore supposed to be disengaged entirely from world events. It's not suggesting that at all. Only that we're more constant. We're more constant than the world. We're, a, we're more level-headed, more, more consistent. We're not going to be swayed by this and that and up and down depending on worldly fortunes and events. But rather, there's this constancy in God's people that's characterized by the rock on which we stand and the fact that His name is above every name. So, so this fear, power, we don't live according to fear because we know who holds the power. And we are powerful not through our own efforts, but we're powerful because He has been declared at the resurrection and the subsequent exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. He has been declared Lord. And we live our lives in view of that. And so our narrative is kind of the latest you know, catchword, I guess. But we live according to that narrative. Everything that we do, everything that we do, we do consistently with that acknowledgement that that is true when everything else is uncertain. That's our rock, right? And so in, in Ephesians 1, he says in verses 19 through 21, he's far above all rule and authority. In Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so the admonishment, I think, for us in the church is for us to stay together, for us to be united, for us to, be, for us to live according to a spirit of kindness and honor and respect and unity so that we as the church, and I, I, if I read Paul right here, he's talking to the church. Finally, church, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might so that His might and His power becomes ours. So at the cross, at the resurrection, at the exaltation of Jesus Christ, our guilt becomes innocence. Our shame becomes honor. And our fear becomes power. All of it having Him as the ultimate source. If you're not a Christian today, see everything we've talked about this morning can be yours. Maybe you're living, you're living with a sense of guilt. You just got this Maybe you can't even put your finger on it. You don't even know what it is. You wouldn't know how to describe it, but there's just this sense within you that something isn't right. Something isn't right. Something's broken. Something's messed up. I don't even know what it is, but I'm, I keep trying different things. I keep trying, you know, pursuing, you know, uh, success in the world or success in the academic world or relationships and sex or drugs or alcohol or whatever it is, and you're searching, 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 and you haven't found it. What's missing is Christ. What's missing is you're living the life He created you to live. And so you can once again be innocent, not guilty. 
You can be characterized by honor and not shame. You can have power, His power, and not fear if you submit your life to Jesus Christ. Put Him on in the waters of baptism. He'll wash your sins away. He'll give you honor. He'll give you confidence and power that comes only from a relationship with Jesus. We invite you today. If you need to come and ask for prayers, we invite you. We'll pray with you and for you. Let's stand. Let's sing. If you need to come forward, I hope you'll do that now.